Well, good afternoon. Uh, welcome back to the second panel of our conference on the question, is Obamacare un uh, unconstitutional or constitutional, as the case may be? Um, I want to also welcome our C-SPAN audience, uh, as well as our audience seeing us on Cato's web streaming. Um, this second panel is going to be discussing a question <clears throat> that surprised many because the Supreme Court took it upon itself to reach out for this question. The issue below of whether the Medicaid expansion of both the, uh, sc the scope of coverage and the um, actual substantive coverage of Medicaid um, <clears throat> would be um, constitutional under Congress's taxing power was argued below and the courts, both the district court and the appellate court, found uh, against the plaintiffs in that case, against the states. But the Supreme Court thought the issue was important enough that it reached out sua sponte on its own to consider this question. And it's no surprise that uh, in a case involving a suit brought by 26 states, that to them at least, it's a very burning question. And it raises the issue of whether the federal government, Congress, through its power to tax, can do indirectly what it is prohibited from doing directly. In other words, the, the um, federal government cannot directly order states to set up programs for their indigent uh, um, citizens to help provide for their uh, health care. But if through the taxing power, the court can compel states to enter into these nominal relationships, these federal-state partnerships, is the question that is before the court. And it raises the question under South Dakota v. Dole about whether, given that we're talking about now a program that is the federal government putting to the state the following proposition, namely, expand your, your Medicaid, um, or you will lose all of the current funds you get from the federal government for your current Medicaid recipients, as to whether that will be uh, unconstitutional. In South Dakota v. Dole, the court held that um, because the imposition amounted to only 5% of the federal transportation funds that came to the states, uh, the compulsion required in urging the, um, the states to raise their drinking age from 18 to uh, 21 was not all that great. I think South Dakota v. Dole was wrongly decided, but still they left open, the court left open, the possibility that if the compulsion amounted to more than 5% of the budget, and here on average it's about 40%, then you might have a, a case of uh, using the taxing power coercively. And so that's one of the questions, indeed the central question, that is before the court in this aspect of its proceedings. We're going to discuss this issue of the implications of Obamacare for Medicaid, first by having um, our own um, Jagadish Gokali set forth some of the findings that he has done recently of an empirical sort so that you'll have the facts before you before we turn to the lawyers, first to Tim Sandifer to argue that this 
aspect of Obamacare is an unconstitutional, and then to Simon Lazarus to argue that it is constitutional. I'm going to introduce each of our speakers before they speak, unlike on the last panel, and we'll start with uh, Jagadish Gokhali, and you will get to see a PowerPoint presentation, the first one here in the new F.A. <laughs> Hayek Auditorium using the wonderful facilities that we've just uh, finished creating. Uh, Jagadish uh, Gokhali is a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute, and he's recognized internationally as an expert on entitlement reform, labor productivity, and compensation, U.S. fiscal policy, and the impact of fiscal policy on future generations. Um, he served uh, in 2002 as a consultant uh, to the U.S. Department of the Treasury and in 2003 as a visiting scholar of the American Enterprise Institute. He was a senior economist advisor to the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland from 1990 to 2003. Uh, he holds a PhD in economics from Boston University and is currently a member of the Social Security Advisory Board. He has published voluminously in leading um, academic uh, journals of economics. Uh, his most recent book, which is available outside, and he'd be glad to sign it for you if you care to purchase a copy, uh, was, uh, is entitled Social Security, A Fresh Look at Policy Alternatives, which was published by Cato in conjunction with the University of Chicago Press in 2010. Please welcome Jagadish Gokhale. Well, thank you very much, Roger, for... Uh, inviting me to be part of this inaugural event at the Cato Institute. I expect that the phase of admiring all the new facilities is now over. That was what the first session was for. <laughs> uh, now we can actually focus on some real information. Uh, uh, so for uh, those... You mean the PowerPoint presentation. Well, that too. Uh, someone also complained about my PowerPoint presentation, saying it's unconstitutional. <laughs> <laughs> but I might note simply that my decision to use it has nothing to do with interstate commerce. <laughs> uh, so um, for those of you who know me, know that I've spent most of my career studying and documenting the dire, dire condition of the federal budget. Uh, lately, I've turned my attention more to state and local government finances, and the information I'm going to tell you is a bunch of projects I recently undertook to precisely uh, the question at hand, which is what is the likely effect of Obamacare on state Medicaid spending? Uh, as you all know, uh, state participation in Medicare is supposed to be voluntary, but over the years, the programs and also the federal funding uh, has grown so large that really opting out is not really a practical uh, solution for state policymakers, uh, Obamacare uses federal funds to force Medicaid expansion. And so the Supreme Court, a uh, question that the Supreme Court has uh, taken on is whether it's constitutional to, for, the, for the feds to uh, do that. The bottom line, however, is that this relatively underreported and underrated uh, um, issue uh, 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 implies that Despite the massive federal funding that is uh, forthcoming uh, to support the state's Medicaid expansion, the interaction of two provisions, one, the Medicaid expansion itself, and the uh, individual mandate will lever state 
general fund expenditures to sky-high levels. That's the bottom line that emerges from my uh, research. Uh, so the Medicaid expansion part is basically two components. One is the income eligibility limit is increased from 100% to 138% of the federal poverty limit. And all adults, rather than just those with dependent children, are now covered under Medicaid, are eligible for Medicaid. The individual mandate has really nothing necessarily intrinsically to do with uh, Medicaid expansion as such. It's really to accommodate uh, the coverage of those with pre-existing conditions uh, to avoid the adverse election that would go with that. But the interaction of these two elements uh, really uh, spells a looming disaster for uh, state budgets. So to understand how that would come about, uh, think about two types of uh, new Medicaid enrollees that will emerge as a, once Obamacare becomes effective in 2014. First of all, those who are newly made eligible for Medicaid under Obamacare. Uh, these groups of Medicaid eligibles will be 100%, 100% federally funded through 2016, and the federal funding rate gradually ramps down to 92% by uh, um, uh, 2019. Uh, but still, it's a fairly large fraction of the expenditure that the states would incur that is supported by the federal government. Question, the question remains about whether this level of funding for newly eligible Medicaid enrollees will persist after 2019, given the dire state of, state of the federal budget itself. But that's a separate question. Uh, then there's a second group of eligibles, the, those who are eligible under the old law, the pre-Obamacare law. And the individual mandate will induce greater enrollment by these old law eligibles. So not everybody who's currently eligible for Medicaid is necessarily enrolled in it, uh, but the individual mandate and generally uh, the desire on, most part, on, on the part of most uh, citizens to follow the law will induce greater participation. There's also other reasons why there'll be greater participation. In fact, the law envisages uh, fed, uh, enrollment facilitation drives. It has greater subsidies and so on and so forth that will encourage people, not only those who are not enrolled in Medicaid or have no insurance currently to enroll into Medicaid, but it might also induce some folks who are privately covered to switch to Medicaid. Uh, so these new enrollees among old law eligibles uh, will, be, will not be uh, federally funded at the same rate that is close to 100% initially and then 90% plus uh, after uh, 2017. They will continue to be federally funded only at the old, that is the current FMAP rates, the federal medical assist assistance percentages, which, is, which averages about 59% across all states. Now I debated a lot about whether to include this slide, but I'm going to wing it. This is a methodological thing. The way I estimate state Medicaid spending increases under Obamacare is to basically track four different factors. Three of them are shares. For example, the share of the eligible Medicaid eligible uh, population uh, in the total population, the share of in turn enrollees among those eligibles, and then the share of those who actually receive Medicaid benefits, the beneficiaries among the enrollees. And finally, the rate of uh, Medicaid spending uh, per beneficiary. So these three shares and, the, and that rate of uh, spending 
uh, each evolved differently, historically at least have evolved differently for different, in different US states, and also within each state evolved differently for people of different age, gender, medical need, eligibility category, income group, and so on. So I incorporate all of these details, and so my uh, estimates are disaggregated at a very high level of detail. Uh, projections of these shares and the rate of spending per beneficiary into the future according to the historically observe, observed trend, and then the pro taking the product of all of these four elements together uh, essentially is a method to project uh, what would happen in the future under a specific law. So I do, it, do this exercise first without Obamacare in place for the next 10 years, and then with Obamacare in place. And the difference between those two projections reveals how much additional uh, spending uh, uh, any specific state uh, would incur as a result of uh, implementing Obamacare. So this methodology captures all the different states' policies, their specific demographic conditions, and the health environment, environment factors that they uh, have. So bottom line, I've done these, these estimates so far for about a dozen states. I'm not showing all of them because some of them are not really, really ready for prime time as yet. Uh, what I'm showing here is the top five states, California through Texas, are the five states that are the largest population-wise in the US. And then a bunch of other states, some are more rural, some are more urban, some are, some are uh, sparsely populated, some are small, you know, so uh, a smattering of states of all kinds from the west coast to the east coast, central, midwestern, and so on. Uh, the first column of numbers is the, pre the number of pre-Obamacare enrollees that uh, I estimate or I project for the year 2014. So these are projections of Medicaid enrollees using my methodology uh, uh, shown for just 2014 in this table. And the next column shows the percentage increase that that implies. These are new, new enrollees from among the newly eligible folks, uh, uh, newly Medicaid eligible folks. So of course, these folks will be mostly paid for. Uh, the cost, their Medicaid costs, uh, would mostly be paid for by the federal government, as I mentioned. These are newly eligible. So they were made eligible newly by under Obamacare. The next two columns, the red columns, show the new enrollees from the old law eligibles. So those who are eligible today for Medicaid but are not enrolled for whatever reason, either they are uninsured, they're uninformed about their eligibility, they don't need health care, they may have private insurance, all of these different contingencies. Some people who are eligible today are not enrolled. The individual mandate will induce them to enroll, some of them to enroll. Now, I don't assume that all of those who are eligible but not enrolled will enroll under Obamacare. There's a methodology that follows uh, calibrating exactly how many will enroll uh, based on the data again. And the percentage uh, increase in enrollment over the pre-Obamacare enrollee is the first column. Except for California, most states will experience at least a 10% or more uh, a greater number of uh, enrollees from among the latter group. And this is the source of the increased <coughs> cost that states will have to foot the bill for. So this is the baseline estimate. So these are about, these, these numbers are about how many more enrollees we'll have. This is an example slide using New Jersey as an example. 
to tell you about the uh, funding increase or the spending increase under Obamacare. So now, uh, in this slide, I have a horizontal line in red, which is the freeze baseline. It's the expense spending is frozen as of 2013, the projected level for 2013. I'm just keeping that constant, just to get a sense of how much additional spending is projected to happen even without Obamacare, which is the blue dashed line, and how much additional spending on top of that will happen as a result of implementing Obamacare. So the dotted black line is the projected spending uh, under uh, Obamacare. Now these segments of line, especially the black dotted line, Obamacare has several segments of jumps. So the first jump uh, just after that solid segment of the line is because the American Reinvestment Act uh, enhanced federal matching rate disappeared. So the states had to spend more on their Medicaid. Uh, beginning in 2014, there's a big ramp up. That's the increased enrollment of these folks who are uh, currently in, eligible but not enrolled, now will enroll under Obamacare and that'll ramp up costs. And finally, there's a ramp up in 2017 as a result of the reduced federal matching for the newly eligible individuals who will, en who will be uh, enrolled into Medicaid. So that explains this, this chart. And as you can see in New Jersey, the addition, that is the difference between the top line and the uh, dashed blue line is quite, uh, quite large. So Obamacare is responsible for the difference in the, the additional spending as a result of uh, implementing it beginning in 2014. And that's a big amount. And New Jersey is a special case because it has, as you could see from the previous chart, it has uh, about 600,000 new enrollees just in 2014. And then later on, they'll ramp up along with the trend of rising enrollment in Medicaid. I've done a bunch of states. I'll show you California, for example. The difference between the blue and the black line are, uh, is not great. That happens because in the case of California, uh, most of, folks, of the folks who are currently eligible for uh, Medicaid are actually enrolled. It's 90 plus percent. Most Californians who are eligible for Medicaid are in the program. But in, the state, in, the, in New York, for example, it looks like New Jersey. It's close to New Jersey, not surprising. But uh, uh, there's a considerable ramp up as a result of implementing Obamacare. Same story for Texas. The, so the, what you're looking for is a difference, how big the difference is between the blue and the black line. Florida, Texas, Illinois, Oklahoma, Nevada, Kansas, and so on. For most states, the ramp up due to Obamacare is quite substantial. And here's a summary of the 10-year cost. So this is cumulative spending increase over 10 years for the same states. So the first column is, again, the freeze baseline. So add up the spending. If spending per year were flat, that's the first column. And the spending without Obamacare in dollars, uh, billions of dollars. Uh, I'm sorry, this must be millions of dollars. I, that's a mistake. That should be millions of dollars, is it? Uh, no, this, I'm sorry, it is billions. It's cumulative over 10 years, which is why it's, uh, it's a big number. Uh, so the, the, the dark column shows that the bold column shows the increase from the freeze baseline, which is under, so if current law were continued, Obamacare were not implemented, you'd have a considerable ramp up in cost over the freeze baseline. The freeze baseline, of course, is artificial, just to show how much additional cost we'll pay, if, even if current law uh, were to uh, stay in place, if we followed the projections that we see historically. 
that's quite considerable already. So states are looking at a fairly significant increase in their Medicaid spending, even without Obamacare. But when you add Obamacare on top of that, for most states except California, uh, the increase in spending ranges from 20% for some states all the way up to 50% in New Jersey, which is the state that I've analyzed that has the largest increase as a result of Obamacare. So uh, Obamacare will add significantly to state Medicaid spending, and obviously the money has to come from somewhere, and the question is where is it going to come from? So why would you believe my projections? Why would that? So let's look at Massachusetts, which already has an individual mandate in place. And so you can see these are uh, <coughs> Medicaid spending numbers per capita. That's the blue line. And as a budget share uh, of the Massachusetts general fund budget. So this money is basically what Massachusetts residents are paying for. Uh, not the it doesn't include the federal funds. <coughs> Massachusetts had a, a waiver program in place after Omnicare was adopted. So I've adjusted for the fact that the federal government is providing a match, uh, uh, but it's not reported as a federal match. It's all reported as part of the general fund. But I'm assuming that the match would have been 50% in any case, even with the waiver. So I'm reducing what is reported as Massachusetts expenditure by 50%. And Despite that, you see a ramp up in spending. Uh, now, one question is, this, there is a ramp up. You can see that. But is it because of the recession? Uh, for example, in the 2001 episode, a recession caused a jump up in enrollments and spending. So is the latest ramp up a result of uh, the same kind of thing? Is it because of the recession? Or is it because of Romneycare? And you can get some idea if you look at all the surrounding states, Vermont, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Maine, which are in the same region, but from Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, both the lines eventually decline, and they, they show no secular increase or consistent increase over the 2000s decade, as is the uh, case with Massachusetts. There is an increase in Connecticut, but I went down into the weeds and figured out or saw that in their budget reports, the increase in the red line in the tail years, that is 2009, 2010, is because of the recession, because revenues and the size of the general fund uh, reduced considerably, which is why the ratio of the spend, Medicaid spending to the total budget went up. So that Connecticut increase in the red line is a result of a recession. I can confirm that. It's uh, because the general fund is smaller. But in Massachusetts, there's no similar decline in the general fund. It's all because of spending increases. So this kind of analysis gives some clue that the Massachusetts increase is not purely because of recession. There's a big element of Romney care that's causing that increase. And I suspect it's because, again, uh, there were a bunch of uh, non-enrolled eligibles for Medicaid who were induced to enroll into Medicaid once the individual mandate was uh, implemented. So I suspect uh, that these projections are conservative. There's a reason to believe that. One is that not all old eligibles, old or eligibles, are assumed to enroll after 2014 under the Obamacare case. Because the formula for deriving the enrollments is based on observed private or employer-based coverage. So those who are covered under <coughs> private insurance, even though they're Medicaid eligible, are not assumed to switch. That's the second point. Potentially, 
a switch from private to Medicaid that would occur and has been observed to occur in the past when uh, public insurance programs were expanded is not assumed to occur uh, in, in my projections. Uh, but that's likely to actually happen. We have these enrollments uh, facilitation drives that, are, that will accompany the implementation of Obamacare and so on. So there will be some momentum or some inducement for people to switch from private to Medicaid, which is not in these projections. And I am including the cost savings from unreimbursed care that will emerge once more people enroll into Medicaid. So the potential criticisms, one might say other people have found smaller spending increases. But when I look at those studies, uh, one thing is clear that their projections are based on a single historical year, 2007, taking their enrollment and eligibility and so on rates from the Congressional Budget Office studies. But neither the Congressional Budget Office nor these other studies really reveal what, how their me method works, how exactly they make their projections. They're based on so-called simulations, which are black boxes. We don't know what's going on in, in the simulations. I suspect the various elasticities and rates that they use are uh, uh, hypothetical guesses by the, by the folks who are running these simulations. And it's also unclear whether these uh, uh, projections are sufficiently disaggregated as is the case in, uh, for my projections. Another criticism might be that the same using the same cost rate for new enrollees is inappropriate because you might think people are not enrolled into Medicaid because they don't need healthcare and they, wouldn't, they would continue to not need as much healthcare even if they were forced to enroll or induced to enroll under the individual mandate. But as one study has shown, when people enroll into uh, an insur health insurance program, their utilization and the cost per, per enrollee tends to converge to the utilization and cost of people who are already enrolled in the program. Uh, and I might note that historically, it's certainly true that we've usually underestimated cost increases when government insurance programs for health and other items has uh, been expanded. So I'll wind up by saying it's a very expensive unfunded mandate that would be imposed on states. These estimates certainly are not very precisely estimated. They, are, they, they come with a lot of uncertainty, but my suspicion is that the estimates I've just shown you are likely to uh, turn out in the low. In fact, at lunch we were talking, I suggested maybe we should actually allow Obamacare to go through just to validate my, my projections. So that would be a good thing. Uh, so it's a looming fiscal disaster for the states, and it basically sucks off money from other state priorities or puts put a tremendous additional burden on taxpayers. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Jagadish. We've now heard the effects of Obamacare's Medicaid aspects upon the states, states that already are stretched thin in their budgets in many, many cases. We're now going to turn to the legal aspects and um, to the question whether Congress can compel states to expand their Medicaid roles and coverage um, using the taxing power to do so with the threat if the states do not do so, then uh, they will lose all they currently receive 
from the federal government for Medicaid. Meanwhile, their taxpayers will have to continue paying federal taxes so that citizens in other states will enjoy Medicaid coverage. Um, to argue uh, from the plaintiff's side, uh, the 26 states, we're going to hear first from uh, Tim Sandifer and then for defense from uh, Simon Lazarus. Um, Tim is a principal attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation in Sacramento, California. Um, as the lead attorney in the foundation's economic liberty project, he works to protect businesses against abusive government regulation. He's the author of two books, both published by the Cato Institute, uh, Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in the 21st Century, and The Right to Earn a Living, Economic Freedom in the Law, as well as some 40 scholarly articles on subjects ranging from eminent domain and economic liberty to copyright, evolution and creationism, and legal issues of slavery and the Civil War. And I understand he's just got an article on Shakespeare. <clears throat> so he is truly a Renaissance man and unbelievably prolific for someone so young. He's a, a graduate of um, Hillsdale College and uh, he uh, is also a graduate of the Chapman University School of Law, and he's an adjunct professor of law at the McGeorge School uh, of Law in Sacramento. Please welcome Sim Tim Sandifer. Thank you very much. Uh, as you know, most of the attention in the Obamacare cases have been focused on the constitutionality of the individual mandate and whether that is constitutional under the Commerce Clause. And one of the arguments is, if Congress can force people to buy insurance under the Commerce Clause, what can it not do? Uh, that would, in theory, expand federal power to the point where, practically speaking, it could do anything it wants. Well, a very similar issue is presented when we talk about the Medicaid expansion, because that is done under a different clause of the Constitution, the taxing and spending power of the Constitution. Uh, and the question here also is whether Congress really has any limits at all. Um, the federal government spends money by giving it to states, and it says to these states, if you want this money, you have to comply with our requirements. Well, the question then arises, what kind of conditions can the federal government put on the receipt of federal funds? Um, in the, the most famous case on this is the South Dakota versus Dole case. That case, uh, the federal government required the state of South Dakota to change its, um, its drinking age in exchange for receiving certain federal highway funds. And the uh, state challenged that and said that that was unconstitutional and interfered with their, the state's authority as a sovereign to make these decisions for itself. And the US Supreme Court, in a decision by uh, Justice Rehnquist, said that this was still constitutional. But there might be cases where Congress was going too far. Well, of course, just as in the takings clause cases, we don't know what goes too far means. And since then, there's really been no development in the case law on this issue. And keep in mind that in that case, in Dole, we were talking about 5%, I believe it was, of the federal highway funds. I believe the total amount of money involved in Dole was something like $4.5 million. Now we are talking about a tremendous amount of money, as we saw. In fact, Medicaid funding to states is usually, uh, federal health care funding in general, is usually the largest single block of any state's budget. And the states are told that they must comply with the uh, ACA's requirements or they lose all of the funding, not just the incremental increase that might be caused by the new requirements, but all of their funding. 
Uh, as you as you saw, the bill require the, the new act requires states to in, expand eligibility, and then it requires people to sign up for health insurance, which they can do by signing up for Medicaid. So the states argue that the law basically forces people onto their Medicaid rolls, and since states will bear an increasing share of the costs for this over time, it basically forces the states to take over the care of the of these individuals. Uh, now, uh, the, the defense is, and the defense in Dole was, well, this is basically just a contract. States take the money. They, can, they agree to the strings attached to that money. If they don't like the conditions, they don't have to take the money. Well, that may maybe have been an argument in Dole, but it's hardly an argument here. After all, as I said, the states lose all of the funding if they reject these conditions, and it's worse even than that. They might lose funding for other federal programs if they reject these conditions. And uh, the, their, the argument that we made in our amicus brief is that states actually can't opt out of Medicaid now under another federal statute, EMTALA, the Emergency Medical Treatment Act. States are, it, it is a federal crime to transfer a patient from one hospital to another for, uh, for <coughs> an indigent patient for financial reasons. So there was an, argument, an article in Reason Magazine a, a few months ago about this, that if a state tried to say, you know what, we're, we're opting out, we don't want to be part of this anymore, they would have to set up an alternative state-based system to take care of the indigent, and that would require them to transfer patients, which is a federal crime. So states are not actually able to opt out of the, the, the Medicaid system. Uh, the argument that we made in our amicus brief also, and that's hinted at by the, federal, by the states in their briefs, is the spending clause really should be limited to the enumerated powers in the Constitution. The spending clause should not be treated as an end run around the limitation on federal power in the Constitution. Right now, the federal government has certain powers listed in Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, and it can't, in theory, do anything beyond those limits. But they have been using the federal spending power to get around those limits and impose federal policy by inducement. And this inducement is, 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 as I said, is in a tremendous amount of the state budget. And if a state did try to opt out, it would still have to send its tax money to Washington, D.C. to be set, spent on those states that still opted in, right? It's not like if a state says, you know what, we don't like these conditions, we're not going to take the money. It's not like they, their taxpayers are relieved of their burden to support those states that do opt into the system. They're still required to do that, which would mean that states would have to raise their taxes tremendously in order to overcompensate for the, for the loss of funding. Now, the federal government's argument is, you know, the Health and Human Services has always said they retain the authority to withhold Medicaid funding if you fail to comply. And the Medicaid Act was always made conditional uh, that we could change the conditions uh, required. And if you allow states to say, we don't like the conditions that go along with this funding, that's basically allowing the states to dictate the use of federal dollars. Those are reasonable arguments. And the, big, and the problem here is that there really is no case law. Uh, where do we draw the line to say these conditions are too burdensome? Will the court want to get into that issue? Will, they want, will the Supreme Court want to get into saying, well, some conditions are too extreme? Because if they do, you'll see a lot of lawsuits brought by states to invalidate conditions on federal funding, and the court will be forced to come up with some other test to, to, to apply to these conditions in such lawsuits. But the argument against that that the states make in their brief is there, we have to draw the line somewhere. In 1936, in United States versus Butler, the court said, if in lieu of compulsory regulation, Congress could invoke the taxing and spending power to accomplish a forbidden end, 
then the spending power would become the instrument of total subversion of the government powers reserved to the states. That's clearly true. You can't say that it's a fair exchange when, when the highwayman says your money or your life. And the same thing is, is true of the federal government's relationship to the states. Federal government can't, we already know from the coercion cases that the federal government can't force states to do certain things. New York versus the United States said Congress can't just compel a state legislature to pass certain laws. Well, it also shouldn't be allowed to say, you have to give us your money. You have to give us federal income taxes and other taxes for us to spend as we will. And we'll give some of that back to you on the condition that you comply with our demands. And our demands, by the way, are, exceed our constitutionally authorized powers. That is an unreasonable way of interpreting the Constitution. How do I think the court's going to rule? You know, it's, it's hard to tell. This is, as I said, basically a blank slate. We have Butler from 1936, and we have the Dole case. And that's about it. No court, so far as I know, has ever enforced a, the spending clause as a, as a shield against federal power. And I think that the, the justices will be skeptical of wading into this area. But I think that Dole clearly makes it very clear that some things have to go too far. And when we're talking about this system that basically co-ops the states into branches of the federal government with regard to medical care, then you are talking about something that goes too far. Thank you. Thank you, Tim, for your succinct argument. Um, we're now going to hear from the other side. Uh, Simon Lazarus uh, serves as policy counsel at the National Senior Citizens Law Center. He served as associate director of President Jimmy Carter's White House domestic policy staff, as a partner at Powell, Goldstein, Frazier, and Murphy, and as a senior counsel at Sidley Austin. Uh, he has written uh, prolifically, as has Tim, uh, he, ha he writes frequently for the American Constitution Society, the ACS blog, and has published several ACS issue briefs, including Mandatory Health Insurance, Is It Constitutional?, which came out in December of 2009, and the health care lawsuits unraveling a century of constitutional law and the fabric of a modern American government, which came out in February of 2011. Uh, his Atlantic article, The Most Dangerous Branch, was republished in the Best American Political Writing of 2003. Uh, he graduated from Yale Law School, where he was a note and comment editor of the Yale Law Journal. Please welcome Simon Lazarus. Thank you very much. Um, Jagadish, I don't want to uh, disturb your computer. Oh, Shut it down. Just shut it down. Should we shut it down? There you go. Thanks. <clears throat> well, thanks uh, very much, Roger. Uh, and thanks to you and your colleagues for hosting this uh, very fine uh, conference. Um, and in particular, uh, I want to thank you for recognizing the importance of this Medicaid expansion issue that uh, all of you have uh, spoken to. Um, uh, uh, I have all along uh, seen this as a sleeper uh, issue and one that raises uh, very significant questions. I uh, heartily disagree with, uh, I think, each of you on uh, most of the ways in which you uh, look at those questions and many of the things that you've said about the facts surrounding them. But um, uh, I share uh, a, a view that uh, uh, Congress's spending clause uh, authority is a very significant part of 
the way in which our country is governed. Um, and um, uh, so the, the courts addressing that issue is uh, very important. And uh, it's an issue which uh, uh, just hasn't gotten a lot of respect. Uh, there's almost nothing uh, about it uh, in the press, uh, even though here it is sitting on the court's uh, docket. So uh, I think it's, and, and there are innumerable uh, debates like this one that have been staged the last two weeks in this town. Um, and as far as I know, none have been about the Medicaid issue. They have all been uh, ha rehashing the same interesting but same arguments that most of us are very familiar with about the individual mandate issue. So, <clears throat> uh, what I uh, want to just uh, summarize up front is a few things. Uh, first of all, I, I think that this issue uh, has the potential to affect not only the fundamental uh, constitutional law uh, governing uh, the exercise of, of uh, uh, domestic uh, power uh, by the federal government and the states. Uh, it has more potential uh, to affect that uh, than uh, the individual mandate issue does. Um, and it certainly has more potential, I think, to affect the actual uh, social uh, and governmental practice uh, in terms of uh, uh, the distribution of power uh, between the states and the federal government. Um, I'd also say that the uh, legal attack on uh, the Affordable Care Act's Medicaid expansion uh, provisions much more than uh, the uh, individual mandate side of their case, is an overt, overt, not uh, sneaky, but an overt uh, drive to uh, uh, effect a, a revolutionary change in constitutional law and in governmental practice. Um, it is, uh, it, the, the legal briefs uh, on, um, uh, filed uh, by uh, the Republican officials in the 26 states challenging the law um, are very much closer to uh, the uh, libertarian, uh, philosophical, uh, and, and somewhat radical um, amicus curiae briefs filed by uh, a number of you all uh, than uh, uh, perhaps is the case uh, uh, with respect to the Commerce Clause, the re relatively more mundane Commerce Clause arguments being made against the mandate on, on uh, that side of the case. Um, and I'd like to make one other point, uh, just uh, to begin, and that is, um, this is not a state versus federal uh, issue. Uh, this is a partisan, Democrat versus Republican, uh, libertarian or conservative uh, versus moderate or, uh, or, or uh, progressive uh, issue, purely. Um, uh, the, the 26 states, uh, that is to say the 26 uh, Republican uh, officials, uh, senior officials representing states are on one side, but um, there are, uh, there is a, a really excellent uh, amicus curiae brief filed by 13 <laughs> Democratic states, including some very large ones, so that the populations uh, uh, re represented by the two sides are probably more equal than uh, 26 to 13, and, but that's not really relevant. The point is that that brief details very compellingly 
why the Medicaid expansion in the ACA and why the ACA itself is, is enormously beneficial to states. Um, so uh, I think that we should uh, just uh, bear that in mind. This is a, a very serious and genuine uh, philosophical uh, policy political uh, debate, uh, but it is really not uh, a debate between uh, the states uh, or state interests uh, and, and, uh, and the feds. Um, so I, as I said, I have to disagree with a, a great deal of how these issues were characterized by my friends here. Uh, as you might expect. But I do agree uh, about the way in which Roger and I think Tim stated the, the basic simple issue. Um, the Medicaid expansion in the ACA is, it has a number of aspects, but the main thing is very simple. Uh, it uh, expands uh, uh, eligibility to uh, all adults up to 138% of the federal poverty line from where it was before, and Roger and Tim, I think, both appropriately described the existing uh, pre-ACA uh, eligibility uh, standard. Um, and, and, the, and the ACA uh, provides that the states don't have to accept this expansion, but if they reject the expansion, they can only do so by withdrawing from Medicaid altogether and thereby losing uh, all their existing Medicaid funds. Now, um, <clears throat> Just up front, let me just say why this is important. Uh, this theory, this, this coercion theory, this is a theory that uh, that choice that is posed by the ACA to the states constitutes uh, unconstitutional quote unquote coercion. If it's accepted, uh, or to the extent that it's accepted, uh, that could topple longstanding uh, uh, programs on a truly massive scale, and on a scale, as I've said before, much broader uh, than would the collateral uh, impact uh, of uh, accepting the claim against the individual mandate. Um, and for that basic proposition, I want you to know that uh, this is not just uh, some uh, 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 deranged uh, liberal uh, um, uh, chimera. Um, <clears throat> it would, you would be interested to know that uh, the radical impact of the claim that is being made against the Medicaid expansion provisions uh, provoked, I think, the only significant defection from uh, within senior Republican ranks uh, on these issues. Um, uh, on December 15th, uh, none other than Senator Charles Grassley took to the Senate floor and delivered, and he didn't just put it in the record, he actually delivered uh, a speech which devastates every single legal argument that um, the, his uh, Republican colleagues from the 26 states are making about the Medicaid expansion for all the reasons that I'm, go I'm going to identify uh, and for all the reasons that uh, those who support the Medicaid expansion in court uh, adduce. Um, Senator Grassley said, among many other things, I'm going to quote, a Supreme Court ruling in favor of the states will necessarily bring into question every agreement between the federal government and the states where the federal government conditions 100% of the federal uh, funds on states meet meeting requirements that are determined uh, in Washington. Um, now, laws within the crosshairs of that forecast would include not just the expansion of Medicaid, but all of Medicaid. Um, it would include 
uh, all federal aid to education programs and all requirements that are tied to those programs. Um, that would mean, for example, uh, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which uh, requires recipients of uh, federal funds to abide by uh, a, a, a whole set of familiar anti-discrimination uh, guarantees. Um, it would include Title IX, uh, which, uh, of course, is the reason why we have uh, women's uh, collegiate uh, sports, intramural and intercollegiate. Um, it would include a whole raft of uh, requirements for um, assuring equal access uh, to people with disabilities, which are of immense significance. Um, uh, it, would it would affect uh, foster care programs. It would affect um, the Solomon Amendment, which uh, some of you may know re requires that all universities receiving federal funds grant equal access to military recruiters, um, which was itself the subject of a Supreme Court case not too long ago. Um, it would, it would, it would uh, uh, affect anti-abortion uh, uh, strings on the, on the receipt of federal funds. So um, the impact of uh, siding with the states or even uh, changing the law or stating uh, what the law is uh, in ways that reflect a, a great deal of the, of, the, of the state's argument or the arguments that, that um, uh, Roger and, and Tim have ably put just now uh, would have enormous domino uh, consequences for all these programs. Um, so, um, you know, Roger, uh, I, I enjoy going one against three, but I, but I, and I'm going to try to get done. But please uh, do something if I start to run over my time because no, I don't want to use that. Tim, was, but Tim, Tim was very brief, but th there, there's an awful lot that I'd like to uh, like to respond to. Um, actually, I'm going to have to respond to go out of my. Uh, out of my wrap and respond to one thing. I, I think one thing about that wonderful um, PowerPoint presentation uh, is that uh, I, I think, I'm not an economist, uh, and I wasn't quite sure what I was looking at entirely, but I, th I think that a lot of that scary-looking, uh, uh, nearly vertical line that was going up uh, to represent states' costs. That's right. You weren't, you weren't sure about it. It uh, uh, well, it was like this. Right? It went up very sharply. Um, uh, I, I think, uh, however accurate or not accurate it is, and I'm sure it's substantially accurate, a, a large amount of those costs, you should understand, are not relevant to the constitutional issue of coercion at all. Uh, the fact that the Affordable Care Act may or may not encourage people who are now eligible for Medicaid to enroll in Medicaid has nothing whatsoever to do with whether or not the Medicaid expansion choice that the states now uh, uh, face about uh, uh, increasing uh, eligibility has, has nothing to do with whether or not that choice is constitutional or coercive uh, or whatever. You should, un should understand that. Um, and um, uh, any other, any costs that are not caused by uh, what will be involved with the states accepting the newly eligible people under the act uh, have nothing to do with, uh, with, with the uh, uh, constitutional uh, issue that, that all of us lawyers, anyway, have been uh, discussing. Um, so uh, what I'm going to do is very briefly uh, run through, as briefly as I can, run through the hodgepodge of 
uh, legal theories that uh, the, the uh, Republican states uh, have come up with, uh, and they are, and it is come up with, because uh, the, the law is very clear. There haven't been a lot of cases. There have actually been some cases recently, Tim, in which, uh, in which uh, the court has reaffirmed the very broad uh, limits that now uh, exist on the, on, the, on the spending power, um, but there haven't been many. Uh, and there's really no law out there for the challengers to hang on to. And so they really are uh, making it up as they go along. And, and here's what they've made up. There are at least five theories that I can count in their uh, brief. Um, uh, the, first, uh, the first point, really, is that this expansion is different from other Medicaid expansions because it's uniquely onerous. Um, and uh, uh, in fact, the opposite is the case. This expansion of Medicaid is uniquely not onerous compared to past expansions of Medicaid. Uh, as Jagadish said, the average federal, the, the average federal share of, of state, state uh, Medicaid spending now is 59%, which I didn't know before, but I'll, I'll take it for, for granted. Um, for this expansion of Medicaid, the federal government is undertaking to pay 100% uh, of what it will cost to cover newly eligible people through 2016. Uh, and after that, the percentage drops gradually to 90% until 2020, and then it is made permanent um, uh, at 90%. Uh, so uh, the federal government is covering much more uh, of the uh, shared cost of, of uh, funding uh, Medicaid for this expansion than it has for any of the past expansions. Um, so the, the argument that this is uniquely uh, onerous as a constitutional matter is simply nonsense. Three minutes left, boom. Um, uh, okay, the rest of the arguments. Next argument, and they've actually said this over and over again, never before has the federal government done this when it's expanded Medicaid. Never before has it said, uh, if you don't accept the new requirements, then you, you can only do that by, by withdrawing from Medicaid altogether and losing all your existing funding. That's simply completely not true. Uh, almost every past expansion of Medicaid has been done in exactly the same way. And this is not just the debater's point. It means that were the court to accept this argument, it would call into question the entire Medicaid program because all of these past expansions would then uh, become uh, uh, vulnerable to challenge. Um, the, the third argument is what I would call the sort of the have, uh, I, I want my cake and eat it, and I want to be able to eat it too argument, which you've already heard actually, and that is the states are actually coming up and saying, well, uh, we want you, uh, Supreme Court, to say we can keep, <clears throat> we have a constitutional right to keep uh, the very large amount of federal funds now going into Medicaid, the hundreds of billions of dollars going into Medicaid, as a matter of fact. Um, and, and, and not accept uh, any new strings that, uh, that a majority of uh, the National Congress wants to impose. <coughs> in, in other words, um, they're basically saying we want to have a constitutionally imposed, uh, we want to turn Medicaid into a constitutionally imposed uh, block grant program, um, which is, a, 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 I can see why it would, would be an aspiration, but it hardly is the law. I have one minute left. Um, uh, finally, there's an argument uh, that the mandate is, is, is an act of commandeering to require people uh, to, to get the states, to recruit the states uh, to help fund uh, implementation of the individual mandate. And I think Tim 
uh, uh, outlined this argument. Um, uh, the problem with the argument is that anyone poor enough to qualify for Medicaid, even the new uh, standards for Medicaid, uh, will uh, be uh, exempt from penal the penalties to uh, comply for noncompliance with the mandate. So it's very hard to argue again as a constitutional matter that um, this is that the the um, uh, Medicaid expansion amounts to a commandeering in support of the mandate. Um, I did want to. I guess no. I'm not going to bother you with that. Um, I only have, probably have a few seconds left. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so there's really much more to say, uh, and there are many uh, points here that I, that I would really like to respond to, but I think I'm just going to uh, uh, point out one, and that is that, Tim, uh, <coughs> the, this case is really completely different from the Dole case. The Dole case did not hold, uh, it was really not about the 5% number. It, it was true that, um, uh, the, uh, under the statute involved in Dole, um, the penalty for not uh, going along with the uh, requirement of uh, uh, lowering the drinking age um, was to lose 5% of your highway funds. But the Dole case was not really about coercion, uh, as, as I think you probably know. Uh, the, um, uh, there are four criteria the court has established to determine whether or not uh, an exercise of the spending power is constitutional, uh, none of which happen to, have a, to, to be about coercion. One of which is whether or not the condition that is at stake is sufficiently germane to the purpose uh, of, the, of, the, of the grant. And so the issue in that case was whether or not um, requiring states to enact another law uh, lowering the drinking age was sufficiently germane to receiving highway funds uh, to meet that germaneness requirement. And a couple of justices thought it wasn't, but the, the majority thought it was. And there was just a little reference to coercion as a possible thing that might come up in some case off to the side. It's really only a dictum. Um, and it, it really is not appropriate to uh, compare that to this case because there's no doubt that uh, the conditions being complained about here are absolutely central uh, to the purpose of uh, the Medicaid program and the grants involved. And I'll leave it at that. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you.